to the coldest chapter in the Bible this morning. <laughs> and so it's my fault. It's cold. Uh, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. And if you have your uh, Bible app, or if you, if you need to download a Bible app, just uh, feel free to do that. Uh, so you can follow on your device as we go through it, because the words aren't all going to be on the screen. Jonah chapter 1. Now in the makeup of the Bible, uh, the book of Jonah is one uh, of the 12 books in the Older Testament called Minor Prophets. And minor not because they are less significant, but minor simply because they're a bit shorter than the others. And, but, but when it comes to uh, power of the message, Jonah punches pretty much above its weight in the Older Testament because uh, given its shortness, it's, it, is, it is widely, it, it tells the story in a very significant way. For example, do you know what one of the most Jewish, or was probably the most significant Jewish festival was in Jonah's day? It was called Yom Kippur, which is, we know in English as Day of Atonement. But the Day of Atonement was, was led into by a 10-day festival called Rosh Hashanah, days of preparation. And those days of preparation ended with a 25-hour fast, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they would fast from all of life's normal routines. No eating, no drinking. No, I'm sorry, they did drink water. There was no eating. There was no washing, no sex, everything. Fasted from all of life's normal retreats in, uh, routines in order to focus on one thing, the most important thing, returning to God, which is what the word repent, the, the, the word in the Older Testament for repent is literally the word return. In, in its broadest sense, re repenting simply means coming back, returning to God, and because it's return, you've got to do a 180, coming back to God. So it's got to come back to God, start turning around, right? Doesn't work. You've got to return. And so that's what they reminded themselves of every year during this Day of Atonement. And do you know what book was the focus of their attention during this Day of Atonement? You got it. The book of Jonah. They read on the Day of Atonement the book of Jonah. And as it was read, at various points, the one who was reading would stop. And the entire group of people in front of him would say, we are Jonah. So we're going to do that today. There's another way that we know the book of Jonah is really significant for our story and for the story that God is writing for us and in us. It's that when Jesus came along, He directly told these Jewish people, people who thought they knew the story, who thought they were in the story, that if they really were in the story, if they really knew the story, they would recognize him. And if they really wanted to know what he was about, they should just go back and read the book of Jonah a little more carefully and think through it a little more clearly. Basically, what he was saying to them, we're going to look at that towards the end of our teaching this morning, what he was saying to them is, how many times have you repeated, we are Jonah? But if you would stop thinking that it's a ritual that makes you right and some rules that make you righteous, you would realize that I 
is the one to whom Jonah was pointing. You would recognize me. And a number of the experiences, we won't go into them today, maybe perhaps next week, uh, a number of the experiences Jesus walked his disciples into and through. The storm stories, you read through those, what you'll see is all kinds of allusions to the book of Jonah. They're, they're, they're Jonah encore experiences. So are you ready? Jonah chapter 1. In this chapter, uh, we're going to see two things. Number one, we are going to see a universal human vicious cycle. And we are going to see a little bit, just a little bit about how to get out of that cycle. Ready? First four verses give us this universal we are Jonah cycle. See if you can pick it out as we read. After we've finished reading these four verses, we're going to do what the original readers of the book did. We're going to say together, we are Jonah. Okay? Let's do it. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind, on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All together, we are Jonah. Did you pick out the we are Jonah cycle? Pretty clear, isn't it? God speaks, Jonah runs, God sends. Sends a great wind. We're going to talk about that a little later. You know, we all get to points in our life when we are wise enough to consult people who are just maybe a little wiser than us. Maybe we've got a, a mature friend we respect. Maybe it's a counselor, or, or today the trend is to go to a life coach. It's more cool than going to a counselor, right? Most good counselors and coaches, after they've spent time listening, asking some questions, at some point will say something like this. You know, as, as you've told me that story or those stories, do you recognize any common patterns? Right? The book of Jonah is written and recorded in God's word so that we can allow God to be our counselor and invite us to consider how we may have slipped into the most basic human rut that takes us nowhere. If you find yourself feeling like you need to come back home or perhaps even thinking you are home but realizing you're going nowhere, home has become a hollow place. As we walk through the Jonah story, will you allow yourself to think through how you may be living in this vicious cycle? So let's look at that cycle a little more closely. God speaks. God's word comes to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. One of the core pieces of the Christian faith is that there is a God, a real God, who is all-powerful, who is always right, who is all-loving, who, who created humanity to live in, re in relationship with him, to, to, be, to be a reflection of him. 
and to be a representative of him in everything we say and everything we do. That's what it means to be made as God's image, if you realize in Genesis 1. We're to live in relationship with him, to be a reflection of him, and to be a representative of him. And we believe that God clearly communicated what that is to look like through his word, the Bible. This is not just a book of human words about God. It is a book about God's word for us and to us. And some of us are perhaps hung up right there. We struggle believing the Bible is different than any other book. If that's your hang up, w- would you put that on the table with someone and, and, and perhaps go back and listen to again to the teaching that we began our All In series with last on, in September, just two months ago. Surrendering into the story. Or perhaps you might want to sign up for, for the Alpha course uh, uh, next January when it starts again because that's one of the things that the Alpha course talks about. If there is one who is over all, who is above all, that one certainly has a plan, a will, and he has the right and the capacity to pull that off. And wouldn't he communicate that to us clearly? That's what we believe the Bible is. So when you peel it all back, the question is, am I fitting in with what God wants, with what God says in his word, with his will? Or am I expecting God to fulfill what I want? God's words include some some basic expectations. He loves us so much, he gave himself his life to bring us home, and he calls us to respond in love to him by by obeying his his word. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you are going to obey the words I say. Now, before you say, I can't believe in a God who would just create a bunch of rules and expect me to follow the rules, hold it. Nobody said it's just a bunch of rules. See, we tend to see and and overemphasize what we want to see in order to justify saying no to God, right? And that's the way some of us do it, saying, well, I wouldn't believe in a God with just a bunch of rules. Nobody said it was just a bunch of rules, but that doesn't mean there are no rules. And you don't really believe that there shouldn't be any rules. I know you don't. The moment you leave the parking lot this morning, you prove you don't believe that. You're counting on it that people will believe that there are rules to follow in order to make it safe at home on the road. And every one of the rules of God are simply rules of the road for our good to help us stay on the road and to help us get home together. One of the ways we can be sure we are coming back home is to simply fall in love with God's word. We talk about that many times, and the reason we talk about that a lot is because it is so foundational. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So, who's Jonah? Well, it's important to see that Jonah is not some mythical figure. He's not a legendary character in the story. He's identified as a historical figure by being called Jonah, son of Amittai. The people who heard that story would have said, oh yeah, I know the family he's from. Somebody could look him up in a family tree. This guy is real, okay? In the historical book of, of 2 Kings, chapter 14, Jonah's identified as living during the time of, 
of King Jeroboam II, which puts him somewhere toward the, the early part of the 8th century B.C., which puts him just before the great and wicked country of Assyria invades and decimates Israel. By Jonah's time, Nineveh is a major city in the Assyrian Empire, an empire that is fast becoming a dominant world power, and and Assyria by Jonah's time has already threatened Israel three times. Three times it has shaken the threshold of Israel's gates and said, we're going to get you. Assyria is one of the cruelest nations in all of history. When they captured a city, they would do things like like take people and cut off two legs and one arm so that they could shake the hand of the other arm as a dying person, bleeding to death. Cruel. They They would force friends and family members to parade through the city streets carrying poles with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on it as a victory march for the Assyrians. Brutal. And while all of this was going on, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. What's he going to say to Jonah? And Jonah, I guess you can just hang in there. I just want to put my arm around you and hug you. I won't let anything bad happen to you. Is that what he says? great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And now Jonah has a problem. You might think that the problem Jonah has with God's word is that he is afraid to go to Nineveh. He may or or may not have been afraid. We don't know. We're not told. But later on the book, what we suspect as we go through this first chapter, what we suspect we are told, is true. It's not that Jonah is afraid to go to Nineveh. It's that Jonah disagrees with God's view of Nineveh. We're told that Jonah is to go preach against it. But as we come to chapter 3, as Jonah eventually does what God wants, Assyria repents and God relents. And Jonah is ticked. Because that is what he was afraid was going to happen. Jonah knew Nineveh was up for God's judgment, and Jonah is afraid that it's not going to happen. They're not going to get what they deserve. Nineveh doesn't deserve God's mercy. And Jonah can build his case. Jonah's afraid that God might be who he says he is, a God who extends mercy to everyone who recognizes they need it. The question is at this point, what about Jonah? Does he need God's mercy? Does he know he needs God's mercy? But what Jonah is core struggle with, what, what Jonah's core struggle is, is this. What God wants for Jonah is not what Jonah wants God to want for Jonah. Isn't that our biggest fear? 
the biggest reason we hold God at a distance, the core fear in our heart and to surrendering into God's story, is that what God will want for me is different than what I want God to want for me, right? Is that not our fear? Is that, is that not the heart of our struggle with God? Another way to put it is the way Tim Keller puts it in his wonderful new little book, The Prodigal Prophet, which is the story of Jonah. If, if, if you want to go deeper into the book of Jonah and into the heart of God, this is a great book. Get it? If you're part of a small group study that's processing these uh, teachings as you go along, get that. It's a great resource. Here's how Keller puts it. The question is, does God know what's best for me or do I? Keller says the default mode of the human heart is to always decide. <laughs> Perhaps that's a test you're experiencing right now. Some, some big issue you're processing and what you're saying right now is the standard speech of your mind. It's complicated. And we're using it's complicated as an excuse, right? You know one of the most important things to do when things get complicated? And they do. The most important thing to do is to go back to the basics. God knows me. God loves me. God wants the best for me. And what God says must be what's best for me. When life gets complicated, one question I need to ask is whether I am making it even more complicated by thinking I know what's best. Jesus went through this crisis. Did you know that? At the end of his life, as he's facing his big, it's complicated test of going to the cross and dying for you and I, Jesus paused and he said to God, God, I don't want to do this. But if this is what you want me to do, I'm in. Thank you, Jesus. A number of years ago, uh, a woman came first time started attending actually the church that I was in at the time she'd never been to church in her life it was kind of a neat story she she was the proprietor of, of a business that I frequented occasionally and I didn't even know her name but I recognized her as the uh, the owner of the shop <coughs> I was in there one day and uh, was being served by one of the staff and and when I went to make my purchase with a check remember those days checks I, I saw her paying fairly close attention to this sale. I thought maybe this was a new staff member she was training me or something. No, I've seen her staff member in here before. And, and um, it seemed to me she paid more careful attention as soon as I got my checkbook out. And I thought, oh, maybe, she, maybe it's me she's concerned about. And, uh, and so I did, wrote out the check and gave it to the, the, the sales clerk I was working with. And the woman stepped in and grabbed the check and said, hey, whoa. She looked at it and started smiling. She said, I thought it was you. And then I thought, uh-oh. And then she said this. Um, I've been waiting for you to come in. I met a friend of yours at our head office annual corporate event in Toronto. And 
when I found out, when he found out where I was from, he asked me if I knew you. And I said, I thought you were a client of mine. And he said to me, when you see Mel, would you just say hi to him for me? And she paused as if I know something you don't know, look on her face. And so I said it. Who's my friend? She said, it was Paul Henderson. I knew immediately what was going on. I didn't know Paul that well. I hadn't been speaking engagements, and we connected with, and he promised to pray for me every single Sunday. And I knew what was happening. Paul was hoping that I would establish a relationship with this woman to help her get to know Jesus. And so I kept frequenting the business, making sure I was a good customer, and we'd, we'd have friendly chats recently, uh, occasionally. And all of a sudden, one day, I said something weird. This woman shows up in church. And, and the first day she came to church, after church, she came running to me, and she said, wow, I love that I felt here, and I'd like to come again. It's like coming home. But before I do... I need to have a conversation with you about something that would be a deal breaker for me. And so we booked a time and she came into my office and she told me the sad story of her life, which was now resulting in a divorce. And in processing this journey and trying to understand herself better, she had come to discover that some of her roots, way back several generations, were in a First Nations family. And so she felt that Healing and wholeness for her had to include First Nations spirituality. And her question for me very directly was this. If I embrace Jesus, do I have to give up my First Nations spirituality? Because if I do, I can't. It's part of who I am. There's the line. I'm not clapping. You know what it meant to her, didn't you? Right? Well, anyway, um, I said, I thought for a bit, how do I respond to this person whom God loves? I don't want to turn her away. And I said, you know, that is a very insightful question. That buys you a little bit of time, right? And, uh, and then I said, you know, I, I'd, I'd like you to do an experiment for me. W- would you do that? And she said, Sure. I said, why don't you come to church for three months and just experience it, process it. I mean, you you came in today and it's like coming in the middle of a movie. You know, come in for a while, experience it, and I'd like to meet you again in three months. And and let's just talk about that question then and see see what what, what you've come to observe. She said, okay, that's fair. And she started coming to to. Uh, church, and I, I had put three months down the road on my calendar. Three months came, three months went. After about four months, I bumped into her in the foyer after service one day, and I said, by the way, we still, we still need to have that discussion. And she looked at me and laughed, a, a joyful laugh, and she said, oh, I am so past that. I get it. Jesus is everything. Doesn't always happen, but several years later, I had the wonderful privilege of being a reunion member for her and her husband. You see, 
this whole thinking pattern that we get stuck in, sort of a, it's, it's sort of a, or in logic it's called a syllogism, but it's not quite a syllogism, but it's sort of like that. We, we use our understanding of God for our own purposes against God. And I call this the logic of stuck. And, and the logic of stuck is something like this. I believe God wants what's best for me, and I know what's best for me, so therefore, God will obviously want for me what I want for me. Right? What's the problem? <laughs> At the center of it all is me and not God. But here's the scary thing. In the Jonah story, who is it that refuses the stuck logic? It's not a pagan. It's one that somebody who is supposed to know God. It's one of God's own people, the person who should have known better. The person who knew the writing of the psalmist who said, I delight to do your will, oh my God, because your truth, your word, your law is inside my heart. It's not just my head. I don't just know what it says. It's it's inside my heart at the center of my being, the center of my thinking and the center of my feelings. That's where I put it. It controls the way I think about everything I see. But that's not where Jonah is because when God speaks, Jonah is lost. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, to guess what's going on, we need, to, we need to see a bit of geography here, some basic geography. Jonah is in Israel, way down in the bottom right corner of the map. And God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is just a short, short trek to the northeast. And what does Jonah do? He takes off as far in the opposite direction as it was possible to go in his day. This was the end of the world. Jonah, is that not a bit of an overreaction? Have you you ever said that to you? Pretty strong reaction, isn't it? What do you say? We say, you don't understand. What would you do if, right? When I was, uh, I'll say it was nine years old, because I certainly hope this wasn't any later than that. Uh, We lived on an acreage that was on the edge of the bush and five-ish acres of clear land and five-ish acres of bush, and behind that bush was just more bush. Um, And from my nine-year-old perspective, that bush just went on forever. I'd never been to the end of that bush. And, but... It was really only two or three kilometers, I discovered years later. One day I remember standing in the yard outside of the edge of the bush and my mother came to me to remind me in no uncertain terms that I was ignoring a word that had come from her to me. The ensuing discussion reinforced that what mom wanted for me was not what I wanted mom to want for me, but she was not going to budge. And I made the ultimate threat. I'm running away. And I headed for the bush. (laughs) Mom said, hold it. Would you like me to pack you a bag? It's kind of cold in the bush at night. She did. She said that. 
years later, I'm wondering how long she'd waited for the day to be able to say that. <laughs> but, but she let me go. And just before she went in, she said, supper's at 5.30 if you want it. <laughs> you know, I thought I was so original. I thought nobody had ever done that before. I had no idea how cliche how predictable I was. And when as adults we run away from a God, we think we are so grown up, so unique, a mark of being our own person. We are not that unique because, okay, I was going to try and get us to say it again, but I won't do that because somebody beside you might hear you saying it and they could sue you. We are general, Right? As we grow older, we just find more sophisticated ways, even religious ways, of running and avoiding being self-absorbed. And it comes to a halt. Do you know your own running response? Do you know it? Remember who Jonah was? Jonah was a God person. And the first uncomfortable thing about the message of Jonah is that it's a person who claims to know God that is running from God. Folks, there are so many ways we are all in the same boat. Can we admit that? We all struggle with running from God. How are you running? Here's the most common one. You don't get it. It won't work in my situation. It, it won't work? Isn't that just another way of saying it's not going to go my way? Right? That's what we mean when we say it won't work. How are you running? One of the biggest challenges we have in a culture with, with of plenty, a culture with resources, is that we use our resources to run away far and not hang in there. We have the freedom to be mobile, and so we just up and leave marriages, relationships, churches, because things don't go my way. Last week, uh, Dave talked about conflict. It's, it's God's will, his word, that we work through conflict and not do a hit and run. Avoid it and run. It's God's will that we work together to the, towards the same goal. Not my goals, but God's goals. And like Jonah, God's goals sometimes want to make me run. Folks, I don't know how you're running, but the first thing we need to see and the first thing that way we can with integrity hang a welcome home sign on our websites and on our doors is that we need to act as if we recognize that we are Jonah and a key sign that we recognize that we are Jonah is that people who know they're running from God and are trying to find their way back to God feel at home here because we are in the same boat in many ways God speaks Jonah runs and then God sends a great wind on the sea, such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. There's a lot of drama in the rest of this chapter, a lot of, a, a lot of ironic contrast, actually. What we discover in the rest of the chapter, though, sort of the, the, the overall message of the rest of the chapter is that God more, has more ways of getting, getting Jonah to accomplish his will than Jonah has for avoiding God's will. God's way more creative. He has a lot more at his, disposable, uh, has at his disposal, and he uses them to pursue Jonah. God is always one step ahead of Jonah. 
the storm, is, the, the, the storm story is filled with irony, as, as we said. Let's read it. Uh, verse 5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten it up. And here's the first piece of irony. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The sailors are afraid, but Jonah, who is the one who should be afraid, is asleep. Now that's not the normal word for sleep, by the way. It's a word for sleep that, that, that means a sleep that comes from exhaustion. But it's also the normal human reaction. After we've been fighting something, we're torn between two things, and we finally make a choice. We do that in our struggles with God. We do that in our struggles with relationships. We struggle. We finally stop struggling, and we take a direction, and we have this certain sense of peace. And then we say, well, I got peace about it. Hey, I got peace about it. I can talk louder. I got in other ways. Um, <coughs> I got peace about it. Sure you have peace, but that doesn't mean you made the right decision. That does not mean it was a good decision. And the sailors, in their search for who is causing this storm, do this thorough search of the boat. And the captain is shocked and, and not everyone in, that, that not everyone on board is praying and working. And when Jonah wakes up, he is jolted right back into his fight with God. You see, the words of this pagan captain are like the words of God. No, no, wait a minute. They are the very words of God. What was God's word? His word literally to Jonah was, get up and call out against Nineveh. Get up, call out. Those words have been churning in his mind since he first heard them with God. And here's the irony. God has the pagan sailor speak these very words. Get up, call out to your God. Uh, Jonah can't run from me. Hear those words? Right? Jonah doesn't call on God because Jonah knows what God wants. Jonah, return to me. Pagans are praying. God's guy stubbornly, stubbornly refuses to pray. And so the sailors now decide to spin the wheel and see who the arrow is going to point to. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Ah, God's there too. Jonah. And the sailors asked Jonah four questions. Who's responsible for this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Verse 8. What, from what people are you? What does Jonah do? He sort of answers their questions with the right, with the religious answer. I am a Hebrew and I worship the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah, are you listening to yourself? The word he uses for worship is the word for fear. I fear God. Are you kidding, Jonah? The reason you're here is because you did not fear God. You thought you knew better than God. But the sailors see through Jonah's religiosity and they're suddenly more terrified than ever. Verse 10, it terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, if you know why God sent this storm, you must know how to make it stop. What do we need to do to make it calm down for us? Okay, let's stop there. And let's ask ourselves, what do you think Jonah should have done at this point? Would this not have been an opportunity for Jonah in front of these people to say, God, you're always one step ahead of me. I'm never going to sleep in your presence. I fall down and I return to you. 
going to know what it will take to save him and to save Hannah. But that's not what Jonah does. Jonah says, pick me up, verse 12, and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come on you. So, so humble, so other-centered, alone in this. Come on, Jonah, just humble yourself and do it. But Jonah would rather die than surrender to God and live. Unbelievable. What's your I'd rather die than statement? Do you have it? Thank you. I'd rather die than this. That's the view of Jonah. Peace. The sailors finally have no choice, and they throw him overboard. Picking it up in verse 14. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. And here we see the final irony in the chapter. The prophet of God acts like we would expect pagans to act in the pagan view. But the prophet of God is supposed to be Well, there's one more irony, actually. Why is Jonah running? Because he doesn't want some pagans to come to know the love of God. And yet even in Jonah's disobedience, a whole boatload of pagans come to know God. Gotcha, Jonah. And this is actually where the first scene ends. The, 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 the chapter division is a little mis misleading here. Jonah, the first scene ends right here. Jonah's thrown overboard, and the sailors think he's gone. And so there's the cycle. God speaks, we run, and God acts. Why do we call this a universal cycle? Because the Jews would say we are Jonah at the Day of Atonement? No. You recognize that cycle from elsewhere? How about in the garden, Genesis chapter uh, 3? There's a word from God. Adam and Eve didn't think what God wanted for them was what they wanted for themselves, and they ran. And God begins his pursuit of love to win them, to win us back. But you say, it may be a pattern, but it's not a cycle. It's not completely right. Every scene in the book of Jonah ends with a bit of incompleteness to it, a question. And it does that intentionally because we are Jonah. The question is there for us. Are you going to complete the cycle? Or are you going to be a Jonah? Am I content with just saying it's complicated? Or am I surrendering in obedience to what God's word said? Am I willing to believe not against the evidence, but evidence, but am I willing to open my eyes to see the evidence and accept that God is and that he has sent one greater than Jonah who does not just preach against us, but who through his great act of love draws us home. Can you see yourself in that cycle at all in any way? If not, you may be actually, you may actually be Jonah more than you think, right? There's a second question that said we'd, said we'd address and we do it very briefly. How do I get out of the vicious cycle? Actually, just 
two very quick steps. The first step is learning how to view the storm in my life. Some of us got hung up way back in verse 4, and the Lord sent the great wind, the great gale. Actually, it's, it, the word sent is pretty mild. It, it, the word really means he hurled this great wind. He flung it. How do you feel about a God who hurls storms at people? Right? That's one of our big questions. Well, his story is actually a good story because to process that question, number one, it teaches us that when we don't go, go God's way, there, there will be difficulties. Every sin has a storm attached to it. Now, let me be clear. Let me be really clear. The Bible does not teach that every difficulty, every pain is a result of sin. But it does teach that every sin is going to lead to pain in some way for you or others. It leads down a road that you don't want to go. But the question is, how do I view that storm? Do I view it as God punishing me, or will I see that storm as God pursuing me to draw me back? As we read this story, isn't it so clear that this storm is actually an act of God's mercy? In this storm, he is pursuing both Jonah and these sailors. He is not letting Jonah go. A storm is either one of two things, and sometimes both. It's God getting our attention to bring us back to him, or it's God allowing situations in our life to help us grow deeper into him and develop things like hope and love and patience, self-control and perseverance. Don't we want those things? Is that something that allows us to develop those things? Is that not a good thing? When our kids were at the stage of life where they were getting their driver's license, LaDonna and I, behind their backs, would say to each other, you know what? It would be really good if very early in their driving career they had a son or daughter. Not something that damaged themselves or others, but one that just made them a little less overconfident. We'd make sure we had an older, con older car and we'd think about God led us that way. And God graciously, with both kids, allowed that very thing to happen. Were we merciless parents in thinking that that might be a good thing for our kids? I don't think so. Is there a storm in your life that you need to look at differently? Perhaps it's a storm that brought you here this morning. On behalf of God himself, I want to say it one more time. Welcome home. The issue is not whether you deserve the storm or not. The only issue is are you using that storm to come home where you belong? Because that storm is really God pursuing you. The second step back to the mercy of God also has to do with the storm teacher and how Jesus talks about Jonah and the storm. And this is how I know that I can say from God himself that my storm is not intended by God to punish me. It's intended by God to pursue me. You see, when Jesus' skeptics demanded that he do some more signs, some miracles to prove that he was really who he said he was, What did he say to them? You guys have seen plenty of signs. The 
They want to just disciple science. Jesus said, you'll get rid of disciple science. One more sign. The only sign we'll be giving you is the sign of Jonah. What's with that? And somewhat enigmatically, he clarifies what he meant. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh-huh. Later, anyone who was really genuine in, in their questions of faith would come to realize that Jesus was talking about his death and his resurrection. But was this only about three days and three nights? What was that three days and three nights a sign of? Let's go back to what Jonah says to the fish. What did he say? Throw me overboard. Jonah, poor example of God's love that he was, is actually revealing to these people what God's love actually is. What Jesus' love for us really is at its core. How much God's mercy cost God his life for mine. You see, the key step out of the cycle is to accept that I can't get out of the cycle. I can't do the right thing to get out of the cycle. I never will. But God has come and has borne on his shoulders every component of the punishment factor in that storm, the judgment factor of every storm, so that when I am willing to come home, what I get is arms open wide, always, always. That's what the sailors experienced. And although it takes a little longer for Jonah, the God guy, to get it, that's what Jonah experiences. As soon as Jonah hits the water, the God whom he did not have trust to have his best interest at heart saves him. Although we wonder, does, does he really have Jonah's heart yet? I love the way Tim Keller puts it in his book about this little episode. He says, this mysterious divine mercy that Jonah finds so inexplicable and offensive turns out to be his only hope. In fact, this is what we are called by Jesus to sacrifice. And we search for this hope for those those who are serving us come forward, worship team come forward. Um, this is our Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement, because we are Jonah and we need it. And so today as we process this, as we take this, what we are called as we take this to, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to examine ourselves. So in a self-examination mode, would you, as you take this, would you process and, and, and allow yourself to be aware of what your I am Jonah struggle is? What is it? Perhaps it's feeling you don't deserve God's mercy and you're going to prove yourself before you accept what Jesus did for you. And then, then worse, you can't do it. Perhaps your I am Jonah struggle is literal that you do not want to pass God's mercy on to somebody who has struggled just like you. 
the second question, how am I crossing this strange fault that God sends my life through? Am I running from God or am I running to God? And which one? Would you ask those questions of yourself? And if you want to say, yeah, I want to be in. I, I, I want to come home. I could win on that one. And that's fine. Doesn't matter where you are in your journey. <laughs> it's yours. That's your celebration today. Just do it. Simply say thank you to God. And he gives us welcome home. We're going to do um, uh, communion in the Renew service in a little different kind of way. We're going to get you guys to stand. And if, uh, if you'd stand, we can do that. And um, we're actually going to get you to come forward. If, if you want to receive this, come forward as if you're coming to the foot of the cross. And, and we have servers here. They'll give you a cup and a bread. Take the two of them together. Go back to your seat, and, and then just hold it until everybody that wants communion will, will have brought it. So come up, grab it, go back to your seat, and stay standing, and then we'll sit together. Actually, no, when you go back to your seat, you can sit. We're, we're processing this at the beginning. So when you go back to your seat, sit down. And if, you, uh, are if you're mobile challenged in any way, just put your hands up, and somebody will come and, and serve you down there, okay? So... Worship team, lead us. Joys of praise. Take his heart, Lord. I 
Lord our God, we cannot believe how merciful you are. We cannot believe the extent of your mercy for us. Warm our hearts today. Help us to open our hearts. Help us to allow our hearts to be broken so that your mercy can be poured in. the mercy of God in the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Take both of them together. together.